0: The Inventive Podcast, mixing engineering fact and fiction. Inventive.
1: Inventive. Inventive.
0: With Trevor Cox, Professor of Acoustic Engineering at the University of Salford.
2: We're never really looking at finding people that are easy to find, which means that there's generally not an obvious way to get to them or they would have been rescued already. So that's where the find a way or make one comes in. The idea is to find these people and figure out the way to get to them.
1: He never planned on working in danger zones. He sometimes still asks himself why he chose to jettison the noble element of certainty in favour of the unstable alchemy of intuition. He wonders if his decision to tread such uneven ground was somehow preordained. If there are aspects of his history he can never escape.
3: Welcome to Inventive. That was my guest for today, Joshua Makabueg, a structural engineer whose day job is quantifying the risks and costs of catastrophes but he also leaves his desk job behind to work on the ground rescuing people after natural disasters. You also heard Nina Allen reading a short snippet from today's story. It's about someone who uncovers more than people trapped in the rubble. You'll get Nina's full story at the end of the podcast. But first, let's hear the interview which inspired her.
2: So hello, my name is Joshua Makabueg. I'm a chartered structural engineer. I used to work as a design engineer, designing buildings in the UK, the Middle East and other countries. So I've also heard you have kind of described as a search and rescue engineer.
3: What's that? I've never heard of that kind of discipline before.
2: Yeah, it's fairly unusual, but um, I went to the Japan tsunami with something called the Earthquake Engineering Field Investigation Team. And that essentially led me down the path of becoming what I call a disaster risk engineer. So that basically means using, in my case, it's structural engineering, because that's my professional background, for um, the mitigation of disaster risk. So the humanitarian aspect would come into things like search and rescue, which is one of the things that I do. And there are different types of search and rescue. So my particular work is in urban search and rescue, which means finding people trapped in collapsed buildings and safely getting them out of the building. The role of the engineer in in urban search and rescue is in trying to understand the least dangerous way to access and to extricate and pull out the casualty. So when you have a collapsed building, that's a very dangerous thing. It's just a big pile of very heavy things that can move and fall and cause a lot of harm to the people inside and the people outside. And so your role as the engineer is to figure out the least dangerous way to get into that building or that rubble pile and, and get the people out. I mean that sounds to me quite difficult because I can imagine if
3: you're designing a bridge that people are building to your plans in some way that things are going to turn out in a quite nice ordered way but when you go to a building it presumably it collapses in a myriad of different ways and your structures are not as neat and tidy there's no blueprints for you to work from of, of what the building is once it's collapsed.
2: That's exactly right yeah so it's a very different mindset from the role of a design engineer so a more typical engineering role would be someone has a concept for a building or a bridge or a stadium or some other form of structure and then you figure out the way to make that idea stand up in the real world using real materials columns beams steel concrete etc Then your main job really after defining how to carry those weights and loads is to think of all the things that could go wrong how your building might crack or fail or move or subside and then think about ways to mitigate those risks or to stop that from happening. And that's how, that's how you design your building. And um, that might sag too much. Okay, well, let's make that stronger. This column's in the wrong place. Okay, let's move it, but then that's gonna cause other problems. Let's deal with those. The mindset for search and rescue engineering is a little bit different because as you say, you don't really have very much information other than what you have in front of you. The other big difference is, um, whereas a design might take months or even years, you don't really have any time to find out much more than what you have in front of you. So if there's somebody trapped inside a collapsed building, then you'll have minutes to decide the best way to, to access and extricate those people. And you don't really have anything other than what you can see with your eyes. And the ways that you can try to approach that problem is you want to get as much information as possible. So, you know, you'll you'll go around the structure. You'll take in as much information as you can. And when you're doing that, you're really trying to assess... The past, present and future of the structure. So what I mean there is when you have a collapsed building, this picture, you know, a big rubble pile of collapsed slabs and beams and roofs and a bit of a mess. Your first thought should be, are there any victims inside and where are they likely to be? Because that's where you need to focus your attention. And then for the structure, it's what did that building look like originally? So it stood over here now it's collapsed and it's ended up over here. And the collapse has likely been... From what we can see, it looks like it might be a failure of the ground floor columns on the west side, which has caused it to topple. And all that information tells you, okay, what it's made of, where it's moved to, which gives you information on where people are likely to be, etc. But also then to think about what would happen next. So if this was to fail further, Could that slab that's there resting on that wall, could that wall fan and could it move further? If that was to move further would that crush the people underneath, what can we do about that? Can we avoid that risk? Can we remove it? Can we mitigate it or can we monitor that risk? So, yes, it's very different from your typical design structural engineering, but they very much lead on from one another.
3: I I think it's interesting because if I think of your day job, I imagine, because I'm an acoustic engineer, I imagine it's got some similarities in the fact you're sitting at a computer that's doing all these calculations, solving all these physics equations using some mathematics. How does that feed into what you're doing when you're stood there looking at essentially a pile of rubble? I mean, are you just intuitively working with what you think or are
2: you actually solving maths and physics at that point? There's um, not going to be, in in the rescue um, context, there's not going to be time. To certainly run any kind of computer model, um, but what does need to happen is um, essentially calculations in your in, in your mind. so as you say, kind of intuitive judgments but intuitive judgments based on sound engineering principles. So what that means is um, to step back to you know your, your typical uh, design office kind of work, Um, Yes, you have computer models that can run the simulations for you, but you always have to start from engineering fundamentals and the basics of physics. So any building, anything, should be designable using pen and paper in the basic sense. And certainly that's how buildings have been designed over the vast history of the discipline of engineering. And so by using a pen and paper, you're looking actually what are the basic rules of physics that are happening here. Well, that's generally force and loads and weights and load paths how that weight gets carried down to the ground and that principle of forces weights and load paths is exactly the the basis of your intuitive decisions when looking at 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 a damaged or collapsed building it's where is that building now how did it get there what are the weights and loads what are the heavy parts of the structure okay the slab Where are the forces going in that? Well, it's actually leaning against the side wall. That means it's actually pushing sideways as well as the weight just pushing downwards, which means that, okay, if it's pushing sideways, that force needs to be resisted by something. The the weight needs to be carried by something. And if the wall that's holding it doesn't look like it's very strong, so that if there was another earthquake, that could fall or if it was disturbed, it could fall then that's when you need to make the decision, all right, I think that the weight that's being applied or the force that's being applied in this collapsed structure that I can see uh, is very close to being greater than the resistance of the structure that remains. So if if that's the case, then we need to make that structure stronger, which would mean putting some kind of support against the wall in this case to support those forces and loads. So um, the calculations certainly need to happen, But they don't happen on a computer, certainly. Uh, You may make some quick calculations on paper, but generally it's about intuition and deciding on the best course of action on the information that you have in the time that you have.
3: I've got an interesting quote from you I'd like to ask you about, which I think is highly relevant here. And, And you say, we shall either find a way or make one.
2: Yeah, so that's our slogan for the search and rescue team. That I'm part of. So that's SARAID, Search and Rescue Assistance in Disasters, which is a UK NGO made up of volunteers. And what that means is if you have somebody trapped in a collapsed building, then you have to find a way to get to those people. You know, you're generally looking at buildings that have people uh, trapped deep inside the structure or underneath the rubble so that they couldn't A, get themselves out, and B, the local emergency services and the local first responders by which I mean friends, family, passers-by. Those would be normally pulling out people that are near the top of the rubble or easy to get to. But then you have the people that are deep inside entombed and those are the people that the international rescue is there to get to. So we're never really looking at finding people that are easy to find or easy to get to, which means that there's generally not an obvious way to get to them or they would have been rescued already. So that's where the find a way or make one comes in Um, the idea is to find these people and figure out the way to get to them and that would involve things like shoring the structure so temporarily making it as stable as possible lifting and shifting of heavy items like slabs and boulders that might be in the way breaching and breaking through slabs and walls and other things that might be in the way using rope work to work at height or on unsteady ground and then carrying out first aid to stabilise any casualties and get them out of the structure. So this is all about finding or or making a way when it seemingly doesn't seem that there is one.
3: And when I think of these kind of rescues uh, that you're describing there, I mean, I I think the news footage of those sort of kind of miraculous rescues that happen, you know, someone who's been there a long time and you can't quite believe there would be someone still alive, but alongside those kind of positives, I mean, we're dealing with a tragedy with with many people dying. I mean, how do you cope with
2: going to a site of such a, a catastrophe? Um, well, I, one thing is obviously the um, the training. You're dealing with tragic situations where people would have lost their lives and livelihoods. But the thing to remember is that you're there to do something about it. So... Yes, the first time you go to to these kind of sites, I I mentioned the Japan tsunami in 2011 that I went to before. And I remember the first few hours of being among the the rubble and the destruction was perhaps less effective because you are kind of affected by what you're seeing. But, you know, you realize quite quickly that you're there to actually do something about it. Um, and so you just focus on that, really.
3: Yeah, yeah you've you've been to a variety of places. You'd, so you've been dealing with, say, hurricanes in the Caribbean, or earthquakes, or tsunamis, like in Albania or Cook Islands. Or you're in Lebanon recently, weren't you, with the Beirut uh, explosion? Maybe you could tell us a bit about a few of those, and what and what's different when you turn up to these places in terms of the problems you have to solve. So.
2: Every disaster and event is very, very different from the, from the last. And um, in 2015, you had the Nepal earthquake, a large earthquake that happened near the capital of Kathmandu. Kathmandu has a large number of uh, what's called unreinforced masonry structures and buildings so basically it just means brick buildings and they're not engineered which means that they often have kind of weak mortar they're not very well proportioned in some cases and it means that they're very dangerous in earthquakes and that that led to a lot of the collapses Uh, one thing that's unique about that disaster is the building type and that forms a particular type of rubble and obviously the logistics which means how you actually get from a to b so we had to leave from the uk It wasn't possible to fly to Kathmandu because the Kathmandu airport was damaged and so closed. And so we had to fly to Delhi. Um, So it takes time to get to these buildings. And so, yeah, Nepal was unique in in its building types and its logistics. Um, And to then compare it to um, Hurricane Irma, which happened in 2017, I spent some time on the Turks and Caicos Islands, and the kind of north, north north-central of the Caribbean And the damage there was very different, as you'd expect. So an earthquake, basically, the ground shakes, and that makes the the weight of the building has inertia, which means that as the ground shakes, the building also wants to shake. And that movement of the building and its own weight is what causes the force that then breaks the structure and it collapses. Whereas a hurricane is very different. It has very high winds, so you have an external force applying to your building. And that will do things like try to lift up the roof. So as the wind passes over your structure, it causes an uplift force. And that uplift force acts the most in the corners of the roof. So if that actually then damages the roof so that air can get inside, so if it either lifts the roof or it lifts off the tiles and the covering, then what you have inside is a pressurization. The air inside gets pressurized, which Also creates an outward force. So you've got the uplift force of the wind passing over the structure and the outward force of the pressurized air inside. They both do the same thing, which is to try and lift off the roof and push out the openings. So what I saw on Turks and Caicos Islands was a lot of roofs damaged and destroyed and lighter structures being destroyed because of that internal pressurization. And when you have uh, the roof being taken off, then you often have that accompanied by wind driven rain. So there was an example of a hospital and it was the only hospital on that island. And they had just the damage that I described. And that was a problem because where that rain came in just happened to be where all of the electrics and the mechanical equipment for the hospital were, which meant that the whole hospital was out of electricity, which then has knock on effects for the health care of the island at a time when there are likely to be injuries and damage. So it's a very it's it's a very big problem. And so in terms of my role, my role as an engineer, it it differs by the different disaster because the conditions in all of them are completely different in terms of the building types, the the levels of damage, the response of the government and how you fit into that, how you get to the country, how you get around the country, how the other teams are operating in the country. Every single one of them is very different. So that's where the kind of training and the experience comes in. You you mentioned
3: teams there in in your description and I can't imagine
2: this this thing
3: ever being a very solitary affair. But I mean, there's a stereotype around engineers, isn't it? That they're not really people, people, they're rather solitary. But yet, to get this to work, you have to be a very effective team player.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, as an engineer in the team, you know, you remember that this team, I'm talking about SARAID in my case, the engineers are very much just another part of the team alongside the the medics, uh, the technicians, the team leaders, etc., that's how it needs to work, because if you're working in a difficult situation, such as a disaster zone, then it's very important that the team gels and knows each other very well. And did that teamwork come naturally to you? I don't know, really. I think um, I mean, I think the team... So I, I've just given the example of why team working is important for search and rescue, but, you know, that's very true of your... You know, being a design engineer as well, you know, the the um, the work of designing um, buildings and structures is very much a team effort. So on larger structures, then there'll be a team of structural engineers and you most definitely can't operate in a silo for that work to be effective. Also, even as a structural engineer, you're working among a design team, right? So that would involve the architects, the services engineers, the contractor, the guys that are actually building the structure. And so you know, you're know you always very much part of a team. And you know, if you're given a brief a description of what you're supposed to be designing from a client, what you need is constant collaboration and constant discussion saying, okay, well, this is where we're at at the moment. Uh, I think that what has been designed here is actually problematic because you know these columns in this location actually mean that they're less efficient which means that they need to carry more weight than they would do if they were placed somewhere else which means they need to be bigger which means they take up more space they cost more etc so you need this kind of constant discussion of what happens if we tweak it a bit and put it here so communication is always very very key and as to whether or not it comes naturally then i think engineering as any profession is made up of a complete spectrum of people right so you have everything from those that are naturally kind of outgoing extroverted team players and then you have those that are perhaps prefer to kind of work on their own and in, in isolation and I guess naturally at school for example I was quite happy to kind of do my own work and research and and so when becoming a design engineer I had to learn that team playing aspect But really, it's only a positive experience. And I think every engineer, to be an effective engineer, ends up leaning towards that teamwork and working closely with others. Because A, it makes for a better outcome. And B, it's enjoyable. And it's how you learn. And it's how you make friends. And it's how you really get the most out of the profession, which is already very rewarding. And uh, you mentioned uh, studying at school. So, you know, looking back to your childhood,
3: I mean, what, what led you to become an engineer?
2: When I was at school, I was always interested in maths and physics. So that kind of led me towards the more technical route. And then with engineering, then it was basically a desire to be useful. Engineering has a very clear physical output. If you're designing something and it gets built, then that is a real physical thing. There's a building, there's a bridge that you have designed. And, you know, you can walk down the street and you can say that that's mine. I did that. And the people that are working in that building or living in that building, that's been enabled by my 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 work, and that's one of the key, I think, drivers of engineering. And I think it's that final physical output that is is a real life impact, and uh, that's what has kept me in engineering. Engineering is to me is really about having a real world impact. And did you have any sort of engineer role models that pulled you towards it? Um, Honestly, I would say no, because I was also one of the people that found engineering quite late, Um, but I think in my professional career, then one of my key influences was Paul Jowett, past president of the Institution of Civil Engineers, who took me on and a number of others as an apprentice and essentially took us through the various ways that engineering can have a positive impact on development and the sustainable development goals and ways that we can have a positive impact in the world but I think although I found engineering late as a profession and as a goal then I think my early influence would actually be my father uh, who was a, a car mechanic and so I think that practical approach and working on real physical projects is something that was ingrained on in me from an early age in that sense I
3: mean you excelled at, at maths and physics obviously to to progress in your career in engineering but you were the first person in your family to go past o-levels or should I say GCSEs nowadays
2: uh yeah yeah so I mean I wouldn't say I excelled at maths and physics I did fine and um, they were certainly my key interests and I was kind of feeling my way through school and university because you know my my parents um you know very competent people um but they both left school when most people did and went into the professional world so my father was a mechanic and my mother is a is a bookkeeper and for me then being in a generation where I had more opportunities to go further than GCSEs into A levels into university was almost a bit of an experiment and I really enjoyed university and similarly for the profession of engineering it's just something that I came across because it matched with the subjects that I, that I liked at school um, but it was really very much a kind of feeling my own way. And I guess that's one of the reasons why I now have such an unusual profession right you know you don't really hear too much about search and rescue engineering. Or disaster risk engineering and there are other aspects of that that we haven't really spoken about and i think that again that's a niche that engineers can fill um very well uh, to have a good impact and that's why i work in the field that i do and very much always taking the opportunity to find my own way and seeing what's interesting and making sure that you're always building on what you've done previously and uh, allows you to be flexible and take the opportunities that arise yeah you mentioned there those aspects that we
3: haven't talked about was there something particularly you felt that we ought to be bringing out in this conversation that i've missed out on
2: so catastrophe risk modeling is to me the third part of what i call disaster risk engineering which is disaster response structural engineering and catastrophe risk modeling
3: and i guess that's your sort of kind of i could put it the day job back at the
2: office is it then yeah so the search and rescue is generally not my day job as in that's voluntary but my day job alongside that has been originally design engineering, structural engineering. But then since my PhD in disaster risk modelling for earthquakes and tsunamis, then I've moved into catastrophe risk modelling, which is all about working out the frequency and severity of disasters. And so how likely are earthquakes, hurricanes, flooding, volcanoes, whatever, to happen uh, in a location? And what are the likely impacts of those disasters on population, the building stock, whatever is there. It's essentially a decision tool. So being able to quantify the risks allows you to compare different risks, allows you to look at different mitigation strategies. Should we do something about hurricanes before we deal with earthquakes? What's our biggest risk here? How much would it cost to actually deal with both of these? Um, And how can we balance that against all of our other priorities and issues both as a government or as a household and everything in between so you're
3: doing risk modeling to look at what mitigation measures should we do in the future to deal with potential disasters what's that being being sat at a computer crunching numbers what are you doing there
2: yeah so rather than as a design engineer looking at an individual structure and how the forces of that or the weights etc of that structure can be supported by the the members and the walls and the columns of that building Instead, you're looking at a whole population of buildings. So rather than looking at a house, you're looking at maybe a town or a city or potentially an entire country. And so the method of modelling that is very different. You're not going to want to model every beam and column of every building in an entire country. Instead, the role moves a lot more into statistics, which is an interesting one for me because getting into engineering, I paid perhaps less attention to statistics than I now wish that I had. But statistics is really about making informed decisions in uncertainty. So when you don't know everything about every building in a country, of course, you have uncertainty there. And so you have to make assumptions and you have to deal with how to make good decisions based on those assumptions. And that's where catastrophe models come in, these computer models. And now I do that for the World Bank, which is a large institution that lends money to governments in order to alleviate poverty and promote shared prosperity.
3: And so you're calculating if I guess with this model, then you can say if I spent this many thousands of pounds on improving this many buildings, this would save this much money potentially in what might collapse during the earthquake and and potentially how much would be saved in terms of number of lives.
2: That's exactly right. Yeah. So um, catastrophe risk models are a really effective tool for actually allowing decision making from all the way from, prevention, so mitigating the risk, stopping, stopping your sea defence from being overrun, stopping water from coming into town at all, to, um, to response, so if the water does overtop your, your walls, then how are you going to evacuate and warn the population, to, um, to dealing with the residual risk, the stuff that just can't be uh, designed out uh, in any reasonable way. And so how do we make sure that the response and the recovery is as effective and well-funded as possible to get people back uh, to their homes and livelihoods as quick as possible? And that all comes from a decision making out of catastrophe risk modelling. And I guess there's also been other forms of humanitarian work that I've been involved in, such as projects in seismic retrofitting, which means making buildings stronger for earthquakes for, you know, low-income low-cost housing in low-income communities in Nepal and Peru and other projects like this
3: and It sounds like, I mean it just sounds like a marvelous kind of a job to be doing I'm, I'm quite envious really uh, <laughs> of, of the great things you're doing um, just a slight change of tack I mean if you if you had a superpower
2: what would it be and why um, yeah I think this answer perhaps isn't very interesting but really I think the the best superpower I could have would be an infallible memory and that's just because engineering is an incredibly technical discipline so you need to know a lot which is one of the appeals because you're always learning and you're always challenging your levels of knowledge but also because because engineering is so intertwined with the people that you're working with and the communities that you're working with the really important thing That i think i'm not very good at is remembering and understanding the various connections between all of the actors in the situation that you're in so there was a large earthquake or two large earthquakes in albania in 2019 and i deployed to to the country both times and that is a, a highly pressurized situation My role there was to look at the building damage assessments, where we set up something called the Damage Assessment Coordination Centre, and we supported the Albanian government in setting up their own long-term system of damage assessment coordination. And we also coordinated international engineers to support the Albanian local engineers. We ended up coordinating 185 engineers from 18 countries alongside the Albanian engineers. And if you can imagine, if you have 18 countries, 185 engineers operating in a country that I'm not familiar with, or I wasn't before I went, and fitting in within the government structure of Albania, the the large numbers of departments, ministers, teams and team members that you have to interact with, and you have to interact with on a professional and a personal level, all within a space of a few days. This is all a very complicated and very Difficult situation you have to navigate very carefully, um, and uh, and yeah, I think the superpower that would help the most is being able to remember everything, every little detail. Uh, yeah. Looking at uh, Inventive as a podcast, what we're interested in, is, in, in
3: doing is exploring engineering through both fact and fiction, and we're teaming up with Nina Allen as our writer on, for, for you in this one. She was named as one of the 50 writers you should read now by The Guardian, and she's, uh, she works in science fiction. In fact, she's won the British Science Fiction Award. Um, I mean, how do you feel about someone working on your story
2: I think that'd be very positive because I think that engineers and engineering have such a positive role to play in in the world. And I think that's because of the skills that engineers have, both technical, um, managing projects and finances and timescales and teams, understanding the legal context and all of the other wider context of the projects they work in and all of that brought together to give a real world output. I think that that's the way that change is made and um, I think that if a writer was to take that on and make that more publicly known, then I'd be very supportive. So it's a big thank you to my guest engineer
3: Joshua Makabuag. Thank you very much. It's a fascinating sounding job and and what you do
2: beyond your job as well. It's just quite amazing. Thanks for the time. Thanks for inviting me and ciao.
0: Inventive hi i'm nina allen and uh, i have written the story forces and loads as a response to joshua makabuag's interview it was really interesting process because uh, a, a lot of my work is very focused upon place it's focused upon landscape and it's focused especially on human activity within the landscape, I tend to respond to what we think of as liminal spaces, the exact space in the environment where the natural environment comes into contact with human activity, human civilization, the human built environment, if you like. So I was extremely excited to hear that I might be, getting some of this kind of material to work with. Then I learned that Joshua was a disaster risk analyst and using his work, using his experience um, as a structural engineer to almost as it were come in at the opposite end of this process when buildings go wrong when buildings are destroyed and what we should do how we should respond to this this sort of disaster and at first it's sort of confounding because instead of working with a building you're working with the absence of a building or the destruction of a building the very opposite of what you think you're going to be um, hearing about. In fact, when I listened to Joshua and what he was saying about his work, I was instantly both awed and inspired, not just by his own personal story, his personal work and the incredible job he does in helping to not just help people on the ground, but to mitigate and think about how to avoid disasters, how to prepare for disasters in the future and how to respond to them. But what he was actually talking about from my perspective as a writer was the deep history of buildings, how they were built, what materials were employed in the building, what might've gone wrong with that, when disaster strikes. So what I was faced with um, in listening to and responding to his interview was the deep history of place. You sort of almost had to understand the history of a place and of a building in order to respond to the disaster that had engulfed it. And it was at this point that the story I wrote, Forces and Loads, popped almost complete into my mind. It was as if Joshua's story and Joshua's work was suggesting that directly to me. And it was a most engaging, inspirational and sort of most unusual participation that I've ever um, experienced. Sort of working at a distance from someone and yet feeling so close beside them as I created my own interpretation of their work. The main character in my story, of course, isn't meant to be Joshua himself. Um, The character is inspired by Joshua. And in creating that character, I wanted to create a character that stood a little apart from their fellows, that had a different perspective on the, the immediate environment they were coming out of, And had yet a closer connection with the environment they were heading to. That was very important to me in the creation of the story. And in that way, although, of course, I wasn't trying to draw Joshua, I was attempting in a way to get inside his skin, inside the spiritual aspect of Josh that I picked up on through the interview. And although I didn't speak to Joshua personally, I very much felt that he was speaking to me. His interview was almost like a testimony. It it felt so deeply personal and so deeply felt. And as a writer, I I was totally drawn into his world. I found it tremendously exciting to listen to what he had to say. And I would definitely say that uh, I could see myself writing an entire novel in the future based upon the the material that he was so kind as to supply to me. The number of notes I took during the interview ran probably in excess of the number of words I produced for the story. There was just such a wealth of inspiration there. So um, this is the end result of that work and that interaction. It's called Forces and Loads and I really, really hope you'll enjoy it.
1: When he is asked what he does for a living, Kavan Hussman will sometimes answer that he is an expert in the practical scientific analysis of forces and loads. As a design engineer, he would never recommend an action without being certain of what will happen as a result. When he is called to the site of an accident or a natural disaster, He counts such certainties as luxuries he has learned to forego. Kevin chose engineering because it coupled his aptitude for mathematics with his desire to effect tangible change in the world around him. He never planned on working in danger zones. He had not realised such specialist work existed. He sometimes still asks himself why he chose to jettison the noble element of certainty in favour of the unstable alchemy of intuition. Engineering without certainty is vertigo, magician's territory. He wonders if his decision to tread such uneven ground was somehow preordained. If there are aspects of his history, he can never escape. It is a port town. The narrow streets around the harbour so tightly wound, they are regularly closed to vehicles through the summer months. The earthquake struck in the hour before dawn, they said. As the main shock subsided... A long, lazy, powerful wave turned over in the bay, smashing half the outgoing fishing fleet carelessly against the side, the nautical equivalent of a motorway pile-up. The squat granite cottages in the congested alleyways survived the quake, only to find themselves being inundated by its salty aftermath. The main structural damage had occurred further inland, the shocks fanning outwards like streaks of lightning, like successive jolts of pain from an electronic torture device. Like the device that killed his father. The words leap from the coils of Kevin's brain before he can snare them. He shakes his head to clear it. Such failures of logic can work against you if you choose to let them. Best to break such habits of thinking before they break you. Always remember, you are here because you have a job to do, they told him during his training. Advice Kevin has never forgotten and still adheres to. His greatest enemy is not the earthquake. That has already happened, but lack of information and lack of time. In his day job he works with computers and precise calculations. Here he has only his instinct and the naked eye. He has taught his eyes to function as cameras, to zoom in, pan out. He has learned to use his knowledge of structure as a form of time machine to flip back into a building's past, to journey through its hazardous present in order to predict its possible future. What did this hospital look like before it collapsed and what is it made of? What forces flattened this shopping mall and what further potential damage might they inflict? It is only when such questions have been properly answered that Kevin may finally turn his attention to the survivors. How many are there? And where in the mass of debris are they located? Even as they are screaming and shouting their whereabouts, begging for help. The news crews will be here by now and they will be hungry. Hungry for images, hungry for stories, hungry for blood, Kevin knows he must ignore them, that he must concentrate on discovering the safest access point, assessing the multiple risks involved in breaching barriers and shifting loads. The language of the media, total destruction, desperate relatives, hundreds buried, is irrelevant and counterproductive for the tasks he is facing. Tasks that can only be accomplished through the language of physics. Nobody cares how he feels now. Not even him. The only thing that matters is how much he knows. Kevin volunteered for this assignment at once. Without even thinking, as the saying goes, except that he had. He had thought he would never come back here, to this simmering port town at least not in this life. He wonders if any of his colleagues have realised that the mess they have arrived at is the place he was born. He cannot remember telling them, or not exactly. They know only that he arrived from elsewhere, from a country to the east. They assume his existence did not properly begin until he was awarded a place at a Western university. These people are his friends, and he trusts them. Yet there is still a shying away, a rejection of anything beyond the frame of their current reference. Their work is difficult enough already, too difficult to encourage the kind of intimacy that might get in the way. The more you know about a person, the more vulnerable you make yourself. The more you choose to divulge, the more you feel at sea. The head of local search and rescue insists things could have been worse. The most badly damaged buildings are all in the business district, which at the time the earthquake happened was more or less empty. No one lives there, you see, she says. It's like a ghost town at night. She tells them of a miraculous escape. A night watchman at the city law courts who dropped 20 feet through a hole in the floor, then crawled out of the underground car park on his hands and knees. One of his ankles was broken, but he made it, she said. Luckily, there was no one else inside. What about the others, Kevin says. He steps into his old language as into a dust storm, stumbling against the rubble of half-forgotten words. His colleague, Mona, is staring at him, surprised. She has forgotten that he came from elsewhere, if she ever knew. Others, says the woman from local search and rescue. She has a grease mark on one cheek that looks like graffiti. Kevin reaches for the word prisoners, then hesitates. It would be unwise to use such a term so flagrantly. Even in an emergency such as this one, he does not want to cause any problems later for the search and rescue woman. Detainees, he says instead. The difference in emphasis is subtle, but it is there. He hopes it is enough. In the basement, he adds. In the interview rooms? He knows he cannot say cells. The woman stares at him blankly, like a deer in the headlights. We've been told those rooms are empty, she says. She blinks. They are used only for storage. What is she saying? Mona asks him. She is doing her best not to sound impatient. She cannot understand why they are still standing here, talking. There's a query about asbestos. "'Kevin replies. "'She's saying we need to be careful around the dust. "'And though the woman has said no such thing, "'Kevin knows his words are true nonetheless. "'Every building produces its own particular kind of rubble, "'and the rubble of the buildings in the business and finance district "'is the rubble of poor engineering choices in the decades after the war, "'the years of boom time and high-rise office space and brutalist folly,' of asbestos-lined insulation and inferior steel, shiny new shit off the back of government lorries, fatigued and easily combustible, costing lives. Kevin's father worked as a site manager for the Victory Consortium. Though his mother had begged him not to, he had voiced his concerns about health and safety to the central procurement team. A month later... He was arrested on spying charges. Kevin's mother had taken 10 year old Kevin to stay with his aunt. Just for a week or two, she said, while we sort out this mistake. Kevin never saw either of them again. When he thinks about his parents now, he finds himself remembering something his father told him when he was younger about the miracle of the arch. That the arch is the strongest structure ever invented because its energy is directed inward instead of outward each stone pressing against the other in an unshakable union the arch is like a family he said maximum compression and zero tension one of the greatest feats of structural engineering ever achieved He laughed, then, his blue eyes shining with intelligence and curiosity. As a student, Kevin had collected photos of arches, newspaper articles, and old postcards. Churches and viaducts, bridges and roller coasters, arches in all their permutations. Arches graceful as the liquid spine of a ballerina. The more Kevin thinks about the arch, the more he comes to see memory itself as a kind of viaduct, an expertly fashioned causeway leading out of the present and into the past. Kevin still has his father's watch, a steel self-winder. There is a frame in the back with a photo of his mother, her strong expressive features caught in a smile. The watch still keeps perfect time. What are our options? Mona says. She is asking where the forces are directed. Whether the structure that still exists can maintain the load. Kevin knows the checklist by heart. First, stabilise any casualties. Then, formulate a plan for disengagement. For shoring the structure, breaching and breaking, using rope to work at height or on unsteady ground, for removing victims from the structure, or the structure from them. Remind yourself that occasionally this will prove impossible. The hardest lesson to learn is when to get out. They're talking about a guy who came up through the underground car park, Kevin says. So that's probably going to function as our best point of access. We'll need masks and filters. Because of the asbestos. Kevin nods. He has been working alongside Mona for eight years. Both as a volunteer for urban search and rescue, and in his day job. Kevin is the senior engineer, but Mona is coming up fast. She is highly thought of, not least by Kevin. And they are both experts in the modelling of risk and catastrophe. How likely are disasters to happen, and with what frequency? What are the possible impacts and how might they be eased? How might limited financial resources best be targeted? Kevin has often been asked if he finds his job depressing or frightening. But if anything, he always insists, it is the opposite. Contemplating the catastrophe, mapping its contours has always felt safer for Kevin than trying to live in the hope it might never occur. Disasters happen, and catastrophe risk modelling is the science of forging certainty from doubt. There is comfort in that, and purpose which is better than comfort, even when you know your predictions might prove inadequate, that every disaster has the potential to be greater than you imagined. He has never discussed these matters specifically with Mona. But Kevin knows, without having to ask, that she feels the same way. He does not need to tell her that after he graduated, he spent most of a year researching the history and engineering particulars of this very building. This mountain of stanchions and concrete and faux gothic arches they are about to enter. In one of those peculiar structural anomalies that so often happen, the arches remain mostly intact, rearing from the rubble like the cracked and flaking ribs of an impossible dinosaur. Kevin is familiar with the floor plan for all six levels, including the basement. He knows the precise measurements of those two dozen lightless rooms described in the blueprints he hijacked as the custody suite. By combing through witness testimony, and amnesty reports, and architectural digests, by reading the memoirs of a police chief and former interrogator who now works as a taxi driver, by talking eventually to his aunt Marguerite about what happened when she travelled to the city to petition for the release of her sister and brother-in-law... Kevin has pinned down the exact location of the cell where his father died. He will either find a way or make one. There is no one on the planet who understands this building better than he does. We're going to take a look, he says, quietly in his own language. There could be people down there who are still missing. He asks if it is possible to speak to the night watchman, the one who made his escape from a building that, even before the earthquake, has claimed too many lives. I'll see what I can do, says the woman from local search and rescue. She looks anxious, but she is nodding. If anyone questions her actions, she can always blame Kevin. Kevin Husman. Will be more than happy to shoulder the blame.
3: What did you think of Nina's sinister tale extrapolated from Joshua's true story? I like the way it took the idea of search and rescue and applied that both to the practical engineering problems in the aftermath of natural disasters and also the emotional problems in the aftermath of the lead character's troubled history. Let us know what you thought at www.inventivepodcast.com where we have a survey form for our listeners to give feedback on the interviews and stories. And if you enjoy Inventive, please subscribe and spread the word via the usual socials. Next time on Inventive, we have a double header. It's with engineers Enos Abouhamad and Manjot Chana.
2: Hydrogen is the past, the present and the future.
0: The data itself will tell a story if you let it. Just get the data and allow the data read off the page the story that it wants to tell.
3: And we've got a thought-provoking piece of fiction which challenges our ideas about the data we generate as we go through our lives. Data is truth and truth data by George Sandifer-Smith. is a bit of a theme in upcoming episodes of Inventive, so please subscribe on your podcast app so you don't miss them. There are school curriculum and career materials accompanying the podcast. You'll find links at www.inventivepodcast.com or go to the website of NUSTEM at Northumbria University. They're producing the educational content for us. A big thanks to Anna Scott Brown and Adam Fowler who were the producers and to Neela Allen for writing that wonderful story and reading it for us. Music was composed and performed by Brendan Williams. Animations were by Annabeth Robinson. Images by Ben Warburton. And multi-platform and social media content was directed by Jill Davis. The Inventive Project is from the University of Salford and is funded by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. The podcast is an overtone production. So it's goodbye for me, acoustical engineer, Professor Trevor Cox.